0: Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the worship that we have already participated in. We love to worship you and all the more as we see the day drawing near and as we see our own frailties multiply and our inability causes us to feel our dependence on you. And that's where we love to be and so, Father, we thank you and praise you and ask you now, Father, would you speak to us by your word? We know that you will. I guess I'm really asking if you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to his church this morning. Thank you for this, this wonderful and some sense sweet book, Second Timothy, this letter from Paul. Pray, Father, that it would minister to us this morning, that it would encourage and rebuke if necessary and bring about change, strengthen those who are weak and weary, embolden those who may be timid, and in all of us, Father, I pray that you would fan into flame the gift and the calling that you have given us, that we might be effective for the master in this world and in this flock, and we pray it by the name of our Savior Jesus, amen. We are today starting 2 Timothy, and we'll be beginning with chapter 1, verse 1, as always. When we read the epistle of 2 Timothy, we're actually reading the last words of a man who knows his time is just about up. The Apostle Paul is preparing to die. It won't be long before the order is signed for his execution. And while he still has time, he pens one last letter to his faithful brother, servant, fellow laborer in Christ, his comrade in ministry, a man we know simply as Timothy. And we should remind ourselves here that Paul is writing out of the worst possible circumstance. You have never experienced circumstances like this. I know people in other lands who have suffered in this same way in terms of prison, but, but most of us have never experienced anything close to what Paul is experiencing, and, and this may very well be the worst of Paul's experiences of prison. The words we're going to consider this morning and over the next several weeks and months are words from prison. These are, these are, these are letters from jail, now when I say prison, the picture that probably pops into your mind is one, I hope not of a modern prison, because there's nothing like that in the ancient world, but maybe you think in terms like I do of what it must have been like for John Bunyan to live in a, a somewhat of a medieval jail, uh, where he had a, at least a bed to sleep in, and a chair, and maybe a table to write on, after all, he did an awful lot of writing. Um, Paul experienced something of that in his incarceration in Rome, at least in the past when he was under house arrest, but now uh, most historians and commentators think things have changed for him. Now it's possible that he's living in a dark underground holding cell in Rome, in Rome's maritime prison. And we don't know if that was true. It certainly says on the tourist plaques that are in front of the maritime prison that this is where Paul was kept before his execution, where Peter was kept. More likely, it was where Peter was kept. This was not a correctional facility by any means. It was merely a place to keep convicted enemies of the state until such time as they could be withdrawn from the hole and executed whether he's in the hole in the ground or someplace a little more accommodating, we we know one thing for certain. Paul knows his time is limited. His ministry is just about over. He also knows that he is not leaving the churches that he planted in an an optimal season of growth and expansion. To the contrary, the church at this historical moment is in decline. Humanly speaking, things have not gone well for the church and we're not going well now. There was division in the church. There were false teachers who were deceiving the weak. Nero was on his rampage from the throne of Rome. He was actively blaming Christians for that great fire that all students of history are very familiar with and often debate whether Nero himself started the fire. In any case, Nero successfully caused the people to hate Christians. They hated the people of God. They hated Jews before, and now they hate Jews and Christians. And so the church had to worship in secret. They were underground. They were in the catacombs. They were in the tombs. They were worshiping and baptizing under cover of darkness. They were being cast into the arena at Rome to be devoured by wild beasts, they would wrap them in in fresh skins and tie them around them and, and turn the lions loose. And of course, the lions would think they're sheep and devour them. They would be doused sometimes with pitch and set ablaze simply to provide light for Nero's chariot rides in the evening. They were pierced by the gladiators and just read Fox's Book of Martyrs and you get a better light of what they experienced. And under that pressure, you can imagine, many professing believers were apostatizing. Given the opportunity to deny Christ Christ and live, they took it. Turning their backs on Paul, his gospel, and even Christ himself. And so Paul's last letter Contains his final words of encouragement and exhortation to the man who will take up Paul's mantle and continue the ministry of the gospel and continue the ministry of proclamation and church planting, and all of it at a time when the hostilities toward the gospel are at their peak. But Paul knew that Timothy was the man for the job. Let me introduce you a little bit to Timothy as I did Paul last week, not as extensively this week, but Timothy was a a wonderful man of God. In his letter, Paul refers to Timothy by such names as, verse 2, my beloved son, my beloved child. In 1 Timothy, he calls him my true child in the faith. Later on, he'll call him his child again. This was not meant to be an insult. It wasn't a put-down. Paul was manifesting deep affection he loved Timothy like a son. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, when Paul says he's, the, he's my true child in the faith, it doesn't necessarily mean that Paul personally led Timothy to Christ. I think it's clear from 2 Timothy, at least it seems apparent from this first chapter, that, that Timothy's grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice, were the agents the Spirit used to accomplish his salvation. Most people believe His father was an unbeliever. He was certainly a Greek. In fact, Paul alludes to this again in chapter 3 when he mentions that from a child he had been taught the sacred writings which were able to make one wise for salvation. This is the ministry of a mother and grandmother in the home of an unbelieving dad. There's some complexities here that, that many of us can identify with. Nevertheless, Paul became his personal discipler. Paul was probably twice Timothy's age when Timothy was ordained to ministry and set out to work with Paul. And from that moment onward, Paul and Timothy were like father and son. Paul was teaching him, correcting him, modeling for him what it means to be a true man of God, man of God being a title for whoever the man of God was, the man of God being a prophet, the man of God being an apostle, the man of God being a preacher. That's typically what he means when he says man of God. Paul was the one who gave Timothy plenty of opportunities to fail and succeed and always grow in grace and in his ability to render effective service and minister both the gospel and the whole counsel of God, which at that time was only the Old Testament and all of it. Over the years, he became Paul's fellow laborer and official representative. He moved up in ranks, so to speak. As he grew in his ability and in his capacities, Paul gave him more responsibility. And Timothy's character has been described as a blend of amiability and faithfulness in spite of natural timidity. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes a letter and says, hey, when Timothy gets there, take it easy on him. Make sure he's cared for and comforted. He was concerned that that the leaders in, in Corinth would eat him up. In that sense, he he was someone dissimilar from the Apostle Paul who seemed to never be timid. Um, Paul was a man's man. He was, he was a, a lion of a man. And Timothy also suffered from some kind of physical problems. Paul talked about his frequent ailments and the need for him to drink wine once in a while to settle his stomach, probably because the water was so bad. But even though Timothy was not the equivalent of Paul's p- towering personality, and giftedness, he had characteristics that other men didn't possess, namely loyalty and faithfulness. Throughout this letter, Paul names men who turned their back on him and on the gospel. But not Timothy. Timothy was loyal and he was faithful both to Paul and to Christ, no matter the personal difficulty involved. Paul loved Timothy. He loved Timothy, he admired his character, he even said so. When he wrote his letter to the church of Corinth, he said this of Timothy, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you, for I have, listen to these words, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but You know Timothy's proven worth, proven worth. This is the Apostle Paul. Wouldn't it be fantastic for the Apostle Paul to say of you, you know this brother's proven worth, how as a son with his father he served with me in the gospel. None of Paul's other companions are mentioned as often or are with him as constantly as Timothy. Paul knew that he knew that he could count on Timothy because he had traveled together with him all over Asia Minor. Occasionally, Paul would send Timothy the churches all by himself to be Paul's representative and to handle problems, to deal with false teachers, to bring about unity, to set in order what was in disarray. Difficult job. When Paul experienced his first imprisonment, guess who was with him? None other than Timothy. Right there by his side, helping, serving, laboring, while he was under house arrest. He repeatedly served with Paul in Corinth, in Philippi, in Macedonia, perhaps in Jerusalem, certainly and repeatedly in Ephesus. In fact, Timothy was serving Paul for, on Paul's behalf in Ephesus when this letter, Second Timothy, arrived. This is the letter he received. One of the major themes in this little letter is Paul's longing for Timothy to come to Rome to see him one more time. We'll see that throughout the letter. We'll certainly see it this morning. Whether Paul and Timothy actually saw one another, again, is uncertain. That Timothy attempted to get there on time before it was too late is beyond doubt. This morning, I want us to look briefly just at these first seven verses of 2 Timothy, And since this is the beginning of his letter, there are several seemingly disconnected thoughts that Paul has here at the beginning, thoughts and statements to consider. It's rather simple, so I've given it a really simple outline, just three words for three points, right? Uh, Greeting, gratitude, and giftedness. Greeting, gratitude, and giftedness. Well, here's what we should do at this point before we dive into the text. Why don't we stand together and read it? Stand in honor of God's word and and read 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my beloved child, Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears. I long to see you, and I am filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. First thing that I notice here, the first thing we observe in this letter is that while Paul is certainly in jail, he doesn't see himself as a prisoner. He doesn't call himself a prisoner. He he hardly even mentions that he's a prisoner. Rather, in keeping with his mission, he views himself ever and always as an apostle, a messenger, a herald of Jesus Christ. No matter where Paul is or what his circumstance he. Whatever circumstances he may face, he is always on mission. He is always on mission. I have a dear brother, a Christian brother, who uh, I don't know how he lives like he does. He is like a bow always strung, as they say. He is always on mission, always on mission. And some dear women, older and younger, who always seem to be on mission for the sake of the gospel, No matter where Paul is, he's on mission. And he's on mission not because it was something that he set out to do. It's not some vision that he came up with. Paul never had a fallible dependent plan. That's probably not true. But he sure got uh, instruction from the Holy Spirit directly quite a bit. And so he he became an apostle not because he applied for the position, not because the Lord had posted a help wanted sign, hoping that that some qualified applicant would come along and and help him finish the work that God had begun in him. No, Paul became an apostle of Jesus Christ when he was suddenly confronted and arrested by the Lord, unexpectedly, even while he was out to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. It was in that sense that Paul was an apostle by the will of God. Someone may ask, why is Paul making this a point in a personal letter to Timothy? Well, that's a good textual question, good historical question. Uh, The answer is probably this. Um, Paul wants to communicate something to the whole church, not just to Timothy. Timothy not just to the church of Ephesus. He knows that this letter, whatever letter he writes, is going to be passed around from church to church. Often he gives, or once in a while, he gives instructions that it might be passed around from church to church. There's probably some other dynamics going on here, like when he makes a statement about his authority, as he does here. When he says, I was called to be an apostle, he's probably refuting Something that's being said about him being a false apostle or not one of the 12. In any case, he knows this is going to be passed around. Even though it is a a specific and personal letter to Timothy, he knows that all the churches will benefit from it and draw conclusions by it. And notice the next phrase. According to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus... This is simply Paul's way of affirming that he is an apostle of the gospel. And for him it was the gospel to the Gentiles, but even then it was to the Jew first. He is a messenger of the good news for, for sinners, that God has promised salvation. He has promised eternal life. And notice it's the life. It's not just life, it's the life. It's the life that God gives to his people through Jesus Christ. And so it is the promise, and notice it is the promise. The promise speaks to the gospel's exclusivity. It's the only one. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? I am the the only truth. No one comes to the Father but by me. This is an exclusive gospel. He calls it the promise. And and notice, the word promise here speaks not of its exclusivity, but its it's certainty. God has promised. God has promised. Whoever believes in him will not perish, says John 3.16, but have eternal life. How many of those who believe? Well, those who haven't sinned too bad, those who've only sinned in a moderate degree, <laughs> those who have really, really sinned, all sinners, anyone who believes, and all of them. This is a promise of God. This is certainty. And notice that it is in Christ Jesus. This speaks of the gospel's authenticity and the gospel's security. There is salvation and no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We are saved only in Christ. Listen, it's not the prayer that saves you. You get it? It's not your repentance that saves you. You get it? It's not your good works that saves you. I was talking to the lady who was cutting my hair this week. And... uh, and we got talking about church and the Lord, and it just opened up an opportunity for the gospel. And as I was punching in the amount of her tip, I stopped and said, <laughs> it was the appropriate time, right? Um, and I said, hey, I'm, you know I'm a pastor. I go there all the time, go to the same place all the time, see the same ladies. And they, know, they all know I'm a pastor. And I said, hey, you know I'm a pastor. Can I ask you a pastor question? And she said, shoot, go ahead. And I said, if you were to die today and God were to say, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And she looked me straight in the eye and said, because I'm good. I thought, that is the clearest admission I've ever heard from someone who doesn't believe the gospel. And I had an opportunity to to share it with her in brief. But you know what? This is the gospel. It's, It's hard to look a woman like that, in the eye and say that's wrong and do it graciously and do it compassionately and let let Paul say it for you for by grace you are saved by grace you are saved through faith it is not of yourselves it is a gift of God it is not by works and she kind of lit up at that point oh well, wait a minute then that means yeah you can't be saved by your works it's only in Christ This is an exclusive promise. It's a certain promise. It is an authentic promise because it is in Christ. It is is on the basis or rooted in the anchor of the Son of God. This is how Paul sees himself, whether imprisoned or free. He is on mission with the gospel of Jesus Christ. When times are easy and people are responsive, he's a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When people are indifferent, And they're not really terribly interested, but tolerant. He's a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When he's thrown in jail and he fears for his life, he continues to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how Paul sees himself. He's calling all men everywhere to repent and believe and become joyful partakers of the promise of life, the life that is in Jesus. Now look at the second verse, verse 2. I'm not going to make it to 7 if we don't hurry. <laughs> there is an unmistakable warmth and affection in these words. Look at verse 2. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't really speak this way of any of the, uh, his other companions in ministry, at least not in Holy Scripture. No doubt he, he loved them all uniquely. But to Paul, Timothy was his beloved child. In chapter 2, verse 1, he calls him my child. Timothy may have benefited from a number of biblical teachers and spiritual examples, but he only had one spiritual father, and he knew it. Can you imagine being Timothy at this point in your ministry career? <laughs> Things are really going bad for the church. Things are kind of falling apart for the church. At least it looks that way. Of course, behind the scenes, by God's providence, Jesus is building his church. Always will be until the end. But here's Timothy at at the peak of the persecution. And Paul's about to leave him. I mean, up to this point, he knows Paul's there. If I get into trouble, I can go see him. If he's too far away, I can send somebody else to take a letter. He'll write back to me. I'll get further instruction. I'm leaning on Paul. Paul's my safety net. That's what I tell our, our, our guys who come in for internship. Uh, we're going to give you responsibility, but you've got a gigantic safety net here. And that's the way it was for Timothy. He had the apostle Paul as his safety net. If things went just horribly wrong and he needed somebody else to step in, somebody of higher rank, it was going to be Paul. And Paul's about to die. It's like Moses leaving Joshua in charge. Can you imagine being left with two or three million people, stubborn and stiff-necked people, right, like us? Um, And here was Timothy. He had this spiritual father who was about to leave him permanently. The spiritual father was always looking out for Timothy's well-being. Notice the blessing Paul pronounces, grace, grace mercy and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, now this isn't written to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus isn't even mentioned in this letter, though it certainly went there to reach Timothy. And these are words directed toward Timothy. And yes, it is very similar to his normal blessing. But what would Timothy need more right now than these three manifestations of God's care Grace, mercy, and peace, peace that passes all understanding from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul often weaves into his letters these, this kind of a blessing, but to Timothy, he was probably never in more need, he was probably never in more need of grace, mercy, and peace than he was now. And then coming to verse 3, Paul pours out more affection on Timothy. But the context in which he does it is remarkable. And this brings us to the second point, gratitude. Uh, Remember, Paul is in jail. And this is likely the worst prison experience he has had since the time that he and Silas were beaten with rods and thrown in prison in Philippi, where they were placed in the inner prison. This is the deepest, darkest place in the jail. This is the dungeon. In darkness, in probably the most, the place of most hopelessness, where their feet were fastened in stocks. The full story is in Acts chapter 16. Paul is probably in just such a place now. But notice his first words. Are you ready for this? Okay, so the picture is set. He's in jail. He's in the worst kind of jail. He's a mess. I mean, that, just go on the, if you want to. Get a feel for what it was like. Uh, it was horrible. It was ho- just the smell and the filth. And, the, and, and, and and if they had beaten him before they put him in, he's in all kinds of biological danger here. It's terrible. It's, it's unthinkable. And, and what are Paul's first three words? You ready? Here they are. I thank God. I thank God. Really? I mean, uh, what does he have to be thankful for? I realize Paul normally offers statements of thanksgiving after the introduction of a letter. But this is going to be his last letter. Hope is gone for him in terms of being alive in this world. He never had more uh, or a better occasion when you would think that just for a minute he would give himself a pass to complain Maybe even just a little. But no. You know what Paul's thinking about as he writes this letter? Paul is thinking about how good God has been to him. The unmerited blessing that he received from God's gracious hand when he gave to Paul Timothy. Isn't that beautiful? In chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, Paul teaches that we must must be always giving thanks for all things. Not just in all things, but for all things. In chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 18, Paul teaches us that we are to give thanks in all things. I think in all things is easier than for all things. For this is the will of God concerning you. You want to know what the will of God is for your life? Be thankful. May the people around you know that you're thankful, that you're a thankful person, that in the midst of your adversity, you are thankful. I remember one time we were backpacking, Chris and I and the family, back when we used to do a lot of that, and we uh, hit a particularly difficult stretch trying to get back to the car and to food and to maybe a warm bed, and it didn't seem like it would ever come. And you know everybody's tired when it gets quiet, especially my my brood. (laughs) It gets quiet. And I hear, from behind me, I hear my wife say, I'm thankful for blue skies and poofy white clouds. And somebody else said, I'm thankful for really good walking shoes. And somebody else said, I am thankful that we got to eat a meal a little while ago, because I'm sure hungry, and I'm sure the Lord will provide another one soon. I'm thankful. You know what that is? It's exercising the will of God for you. It's disciplining yourself to live as God has called us to live, to reign in our hearts and not listen to them, but to, to speak truth to them and make our hearts do what God requires of them. You see, my friends, one of the marks of a mature follower of Jesus Christ is that he is or she is a thankful person. Thankfulness, rather than complaining or exhibiting a sense of entitlement, distinguishes those who belong to Christ from those who belong to the world. We know that from Romans chapter one. Paul says the unbeliever is characterized by this. They don't give thanks. In the midst of their false worship, they also don't thank God. As Christians, we give thanks to God before the meals that we eat. You know what, children, Oh, you children, look, look up here for a minute. And all of you children who are down the hall, look up at the screen for a minute. <laughs> um, giving thanks before a meal is really important. You know why? Because this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, give thanks before your meals. He does talk about eating any kind of food that's given to you with thankfulness. It is a call of God that we be thankful for everything. And that's why. It's not just a religious tradition. It is what people who are indwelt by the Spirit and full of the Spirit of Jesus, it's what we do. We thank God. We're not just happy, we're thankful even when we're unhappy. Or at least that's the call on our lives. This is the reason Christians give thanks for the food. This is the reason Christians give thanks for things that are unpleasant. It's because we know something about God that the world doesn't know and doesn't want to know. We know something about God. What do we know about God? Well, we know at least three things about God. We know that God is completely sovereign. There is as we are want to say around here so often, if there is one maverick molecule in the whole universe, God is not sovereign. So we know he's, he's completely sovereign. We also know that he's infinite in wisdom. He knows everything, everything that needs to be known, everything that there is to know, but certainly everything that, that needs to be known to direct our lives, to protect us from the things we need to be protected from to suffer the things we need to suffer. God is infinite in wisdom, and number three, he is perfect in love. And so every circumstance we face comes through this filter. It comes through the very hand of God, if you're a child of God. And it's because this is true that we know God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purposes, we may not understand how a particular circumstance may be good, but we believe God's promises and his revelation of his own character. Stop and think about it for a moment. What difficult circumstance are you facing right now that you have yet to thank God for? What difficulty, what trial, what heartache, what brokenness, What disappointment are you experiencing right now that you have yet to thank God for? Let me give you an assignment. When you go home today, take a few minutes with the Lord in your closet or with your spouse or with your family to thank God for something specific that you would not be naturally inclined to thank him for. In that way, be obedient to the word of God and see if he does not respond with spirit-empowered joy. And then identify three things that you can be thankful for outside of your trial and share them with someone. I'm thankful for what? What are you thankful for? Paul was in jail, and here we are in the pew And in the pulpit and in our comfy suburban homes, we can be and must be thankful. Paul is always instructing us by his example. And so Paul says next, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. He talks about his ancestors here, and you know, and a lot of times in the Bible and in the New Testament, when especially in the Gospels, when there's reference to the Jews, even in o- Old Testament times, there are negative examples, but there are plenty of positive examples. And Paul is identifying with those men and women. Paul may have been thinking of Abraham or Sarah or Isaac or Jacob or Moses or Joshua, Caleb, Rahab, Elijah, Elisha, Samuel, David, Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, just to name a few. God has always had his remnant, those faithful saints in the Old Testament. We see them even in the gospel. When, we, when Jesus is born, we meet Anna and Simeon. All they had was Old Testament. There they were at the temple. You don't have to be a legalist and be at the temple. You can be a person of faith, true faith in Jesus, true faith in the promise of the coming Messiah even before he has come. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. To be sure, most of the Israelites in the Old Testament were, were, were unfaithful. But Paul identified himself with those who trusted God, believed his word, obeyed his commands, and did so with a clear conscience. Again, I think Paul throws in clear conscience again because he knows people are going to be reading this letter and he wants us to know the work that I have been doing and calling myself an apostle and exercising the authority has been given to me by Jesus Christ. I have a clear conscience. Though the Jewish state or the leaders in, in Israel may want to kill me for what I'm teaching, I am teaching nothing that is not perfectly accurate and true. And so as his forefathers before him, he had a clear conscience. And like them, he was thankful. And here's what he's thankful for. I thank my God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. And and notice this. Watch this. Let, Let me just read three through five. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you. Now, who's the, who's the you? You can answer. <laughs> Timothy, right. Continue. Constantly, in my prayers, night and day, as I remember your tears, Timothy, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. I want you to look at this. See Paul, hear Paul, what Paul is saying, and behold the self-forgetfulness of the great apostle. I mean, if I were writing this letter, I'd be, I'd be tempted to cry out for help. I would have said, dear Timothy. <laughs> Maybe dear is taking too much time. Timothy, get up here fast. I'm in jail, in case you haven't heard. And uh, they're talking about execution. Bring money, guns, and lawyers if you have to. <laughs> get me out of here. right? All right. Now Paul, Paul writes a letter giving thanks, offering thanksgiving because of how blessed he feels to have been given such a friend, such a coworker in ministry, such a son as this faithful, dear saint of God, Timothy. And once again, notice Paul's deep affection for Timothy as he sits in his rancid prison cell His mind turns to his fond memories of Timothy. He's remembering. He sits down, and as he's getting ready to write this letter, his mind is flooded with affectionate memories. Notice how he says it in verse 3. I remember. Verse 4. I remember. Uh, In verse uh, 5. Paul also remembered Timothy's sincere faith. Paul's saying, I remember. I remember. I remember. And then he's about to say in the next verse, now you remember. But we'll get to that later. The first remembrance here, verse three, I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Paul never forgot Timothy. He prayed for Timothy. He prayed for Timothy, constantly prayed for Timothy. You ever get wore out praying for someone? Paul never tired of praying for this man. In verse 4, I remember your tears. As I remember your tears, I long to see you. When was the last time you men said you longed to see someone? I long to see you. I long to be rejoined in fellowship with you. I think I have told you this March when we go to Shepherds Conference, uh, the former pastor of this church is going to be my roommate out there. And... I long to see him. And we will enjoy sweet and too short fellowship together. He loved Timothy. And perhaps at the most recent separation from Paul, Timothy had reason to believe he may never see his spiritual father again alive. And when he parted from Paul, there were tears. This isn't the only place that happened. Uh, You remember when Paul was going to Jerusalem, on his way back to Jerusalem, and he was going to be arrested, and the prophets kept saying, you know, don't go, you're going to be arrested, it's going to go bad for you. He stops in Miletus, he calls for the elders, he exhorts them, he spends a little bit of time with them. They all get on the beach, and they kneel and pray. And they all know it's their last time to see him because he told them so. And they weep. They weep. Paul was a strong, strong personality. And yet there was something about him that caused people to be endeared to him. He had a way of being affectionate, appropriately affectionate to the men in his life. They knew he loved them. And we'll see that again here in a second. In Paul's mind, Timothy's tears were tears of devotion and loyalty and love. And Paul longed to see him again. We know from this letter that Paul had been forsaken by nearly everyone. And when he stood trial before Nero or Nero's court, all of these men that he had invested in abandoned him. No one stood with him. He says, at the trial, no one stood with me. All deserted me. Paul knew, however, that Timothy was his loyal companion in ministry, though he was in Ephesus at the time, doing Paul's will, God's will. He would not be ashamed of Paul's chains. If he got a letter that said, come, he would drop everything and come. He would look long and hard until he found the apostle in chains, in a pit, wherever he is. He would not be afraid or ashamed of Paul's chains. We'll see that next week as Paul exhorts him so. Seeing him again would would bring him great joy. And then verse five, Paul also remembered Timothy's sincere faith. It was a faith that began with his grandmother, who trusted in Christ under Paul's ministry. And then his mother trusted Christ. Maybe at the same time, we don't know. And finally, no doubt by their faithful. Maternal ministry to their beloved son and grandson, Timothy, too, came to Christ. And, and ladies, I just, can I just say a word to you, especially you younger women? Don't ever let the world devalue your role or your potential role, if you haven't had children yet, of being a mother. Wherever the gospel has spread, wherever Christ has gone, women have been elevated and children have been protected. Children are not an inconvenience, usually. (laughs) But they are a gift from God. He says so. Children are a gift from the Lord. And it is the mission of God, as you know, to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. And he means to accomplish that that purpose by the ministry of the gospel. And I would dare say that no one is more used of the Lord, no category of people, no demographic is more used of the Lord to bring about that salvation consistently. The salvation of little humans like they're faithful, believing mothers and grandmothers. I'm struck by the fact that when my daughter gave her testimony in the waters of baptism a week ago, uh, she mentioned her mother. And yes, surely dad's in there somewhere too, but yes, mothers, you have the joy, you get the privilege as Eunice and Lois did. If you don't have a vision for how you can change the world by raising godly children, I pray that God would cultivate it in you and that you would be actively cultivating such a vision in your own heart. Your role as a mother, either through birth or through adoption or as a grandmother or a woman who has opportunity to influence young people in any way, your influence is, is profound in the extreme, in Christ's mission to build his church and redeem the world full of sinners. You know, in the water of baptism here, we do have people who come to Calvary just because they're hurting and they're looking for answers and they come to get counsel and they're led to Christ. And there are those Just wonderful, glorious stories of God's radical salvation. But you know what most of the stories are? I grew up in a Christian home. My parents loved Jesus. Mom and dad talked about him all the time, took us to church. We heard the gospel 10,000 times. And then one day at home, I started to think, and I started to ask, Mom, while we're crossing the street, what about this? What about that? Dad, I'm confused about this. What does this verse mean? You know, Pastor Keith said something that really confused me. I've always wanted to say that, by the way. (laughs) What does it mean? And the word of God, accurately ministered, creates faith in the heart. that old axiom comes closer to the reality than than you may think the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world blessed are you mothers and blessed are all of you women who love to help with other people's children and pointing them to Christ god bless you timothy had such a mother and grandmother and no doubt other Godly, feminine influences in his life. This brings us to the third and final point for this morning, giftedness, or I probably should have labeled it guidance here. Look at verses six and seven. For this reason, now what's he talking, to, talking about? He's talking about Timothy's faith that was given to him through his grandmother and mother. Now surely is within him. Since he now possesses this faith by grace, For this reason, I remind you. Now, there it is. Remember, Paul said, I remember you constantly, verse 4. I remember your tears, verse 5. I am reminded of your sincere faith. Now, Timothy, I remind you. I remind you. I have have something to say to you at the beginning of this letter, and it's, it's endearing, yes, but it is something that you need to hear, and no doubt not the first time Paul said something like this to him, because he says, I remind you, as if Paul had said this on numerous occasions. Paul knew Timothy's weaknesses. I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The first words here are significant. Therefore, no, no, no. Verse uh, six, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame. The NAS says kindle afresh. The ESV says fan into flame. The original word used here denotes the kindling of a fire as with a bellows. You know what a bellows is? If you ever go to uh, one of those colonial reenactment places like Jamestown, you go to the blacksmith shop and they'll have this thing where they're they're cranking it, they're, they're pumping it and it's just blowing air onto the fire and as every time they pump, the fire goes, whew, whew, you know, it, it comes up. He's saying, Timothy, do that. Do that. Fan into flame. Uh, as with bellows. Years ago, I remember, and I think you'll remember this when it comes small group time and maybe I... You'll remember this forever a story that um, one day we were participating in the church family, the annual church family camp out at one of the local state parks. And it was evening, uh, shortly after dinner, it was dark. And uh, I noticed uh, Rodney had his camp all set up and I thought, "Well, I'm going to go over and see Rodney. And so I go over to Rodney and and some other friends were sitting around and Dana was there. And and I looked into his fire, and there was just a a little bit of kindly kind of, hardly a flame on the bottom. And and so I made that observation, and uh, I looked at Rodney, and I said, Hey, Rodney, Uh, you maybe haven't noticed, but your flame is about to go out. And he said, Actually, he didn't say anything at all at first. He just kind of looked at me with a smirk and leaned back into the darkness and grabbed his leaf blower that was already plugged in, and he stuck it into the bottom of the flame, and he said, Oh, yeah? Watch this. And he flipped it on, and the flames just leapt out of there. He said, We have no trouble with fire here. (laughs) That's what Paul's telling Timothy to do. That's what Paul's telling you to do. Periodically, regularly, you need to grab the leaf blower and blast that little ember of devotion to Christ to activate your gift, whatever it is, to activate your life in ministry to others, even outside of your giftedness. Fan into flame, as with bellows, the gift that God has given you. Now I realize that Paul's words here are designed specifically for Timothy and secondly to all the preachers of the world who seek to be faithful. But certainly he wouldn't leave out any of us. We all experience this. There there came a point in in Timothy's life where the passion was was just getting low and his devotion to the gospel Suffering with Paul, no doubt. I mean, it was hard, and he was often alone. And his little fire was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And Paul knew him well enough to know, hey, I'm not there. I haven't seen you for a long time. I know your struggles. I would just want to remind you again. Kindle afresh the fire that is in you. Kindle afresh. And Timothy, that faithful, loyal servant, struggled to maintain his zeal for the work of the gospel. He was called to be a preacher. He was gifted to be a preacher. Paul had been the one, one of the leaders who had actually laid hands upon Timothy at his ordination to ministry. And his ministry was gospel preaching. But Paul knew that from time to time, Timothy... Just needed the encouragement. And who else was going to say that to Timothy? Rekindle his gift. Rekindle the gift. There were times when Paul sent Timothy to do things that provoked him in a sense of faithless fear. A kind of faithless fear. And I'm not saying that all fear is sin. Some would would say that. I I, I don't think that's true. It's a gift of God. Uh, When you step out onto Camp Bowie, you're going to cross the street and a bus suddenly shows up. Fear is really good. It'll protect you. It's faithless fear that gets in the way. It's, It's when you're ruled by your fear and it keeps you from doing what God wants you to do. But the fear that kept him from being faithful to his calling was not from God. This is what Paul is saying. The fear that you feel that keeps you from speaking when you know you should speak, acting when you know you should act, standing up, walking away when you should, is a faithless fear. And God has not given you a spirit of fear. For God has given us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. What's the power? Power that makes you useful. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. Apart from me, you will bear no fruit. And love, what is love? Love is what makes you approachable. And too many ministers of the gospel are unapproachable. People are just fearful that if they go or they call or they text or email or whatever for help, They're going to get frustration, they're going to get um, something less than grace and love in their ministry of the truth. God has given us not a spirit of fear, but a a spirit of power and love and self-control and self-control, among other things, is what makes us believable. The ministry of the gospel is not a carnival sideshow, it is. It's blood earnest warfare for people's souls. God hasn't given us to be everybody's friend. He hasn't called us to be everyone's friend. The gospel is offensive. It is offensive that you must lay down all of your own righteousness and repent of it to the degree you think it will save you. Lay down everything that you think you have to offer to God other than your sin. It's offensive. God is a jealous God. That's that's offensive to some. God will judge sinners. That's offensive to almost everybody in our culture. And you know what your job is? Your job is to take the gospel out there and offend people. that's not easy. You know there's going to be an offense. You know when you get around to the part where you say, "Um, can I just bring scripture to bear on what you just said? Can I just show you, point you to the authority over both of us that what you just said is wrong? In, in, in a world where there is no such thing as wrong, you will cause offense. I suspect that sometimes Timothy felt all alone in the world when he was far from his mentor and the problems were thick and steep, but just when his hand became a little slack, a letter would arrive. I love you, brother. So thankful for you. You're a gifted minister for the gospel, my dear son in the faith. Now get out there with the leaf blower and fan those embers back into flame. God will use you beyond anything you can ask for or dream about. I realize most of you have not been called or gifted to service as preachers or teachers of God's word but he has gifted you to serve the body. And every week when we get done done the, the worship service, I exhort you, don't just run out of here. Don't just leave. Some of you don't hardly even know anybody else in the church except a couple people. Can I just tell you something that might offend you? That's wrong. It's wrong. You need to be ministering to the body. You need to be loving people. Look at at the person you don't know and say, that's my target this morning. i want to go over and see if I can pray with them, see if I can bless them, see if I can encourage them, maybe pray with them. God has called you to minister according to your gifts, yes. Outside of your gifts, yes. Even when you're called upon to do something that is totally uncomfortable and you know the last time you did it, you flubbed it up but it's on you right now, do it, do it. Um, You don't have to have formal theological education. Perhaps you can just meet with someone and read the scriptures together. Or maybe you can offer to meet with someone for a few weeks and work through the partner's material. It's not difficult. And maybe God has gifted you to give or show mercy or to administrate or evangelize. Maybe you're a man or a woman of prayer, as we all should be. Listen to me. Listen very carefully to this. Calvary Bible Church will only be as fruitful and effective as its members are faithfully serving within and without their specific area of giftedness. If you're not serving the other people of the church then you are not acting like a Christian. And I don't mean that as an angry preacher. I know what can be done in a church when every member is doing its part. And it is glorious, and often is glorious. And I expect will be right after this service. (laughs) Then again, all of us are responsible for ministering. As in Timothy's day, our time is becoming increasingly hostile to the gospel, and those who openly say they believe it. But that just means that we must share the gospel all the more. There are more people who don't believe. And it's still the sinner's only hope for salvation. And so beloved, I urge you, cultivate the gift that is in you. Cultivate obedience to his word. Cultivate a a thankful self-forgetfulness. Cultivate a heart that that is devoted to personal ministry and refuse to let fear keep you from the ministry God has called you to in the next moment. Or as Paul might say, fan the fires of faithfulness.